Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Robert Spangler decided that he wasn't happy with his current life, so he made a plan to change his situation permanently. Then, he did the same thing 15 years later. This is Monsters. This case bears a lot of similarities to the John List case. If you haven't checked out that episode, I encourage you to watch or listen to it after you're done with this episode. Robert Spangler was born in Des Moines, Iowa on January 10, 1933. He was adopted by Merlin and Ione Spangler and was raised in Ames, Iowa, about 40 minutes north of Des Moines. The couple adopted another son named Wayne. Merlin had got his master's degree in civil engineering from Iowa State University in 1928. He served in the United States Army during World War I and in the Navy in World War II. While in the Civil Engineering Corps, he developed a buried flexible pipe design to fix issues between pipe and soil interaction. After the military, he became a professor at Iowa State University in 1945 until his retirement in 1985. Bob had a rough time as a child. He got into fights in school and classmates said he had an extreme temper. Though the records have since been destroyed, there was an incident where a classmate of Bob's drowned in a sewer treatment plant. Bob was known to dislike the boy and was actually taken to the police station for questioning. He was never proven to be involved. 
Bob eventually got into sports and took his anger out on the opposing team. He played tennis, basketball, and ran track, but his main sport was football. He was a fullback for the Ames High School Little Cyclones. Their 1950 season went undefeated and their coach was named Iowa's Football Coach of the Year. Nancy Stallman was born in Ames on September 11, 1933, to Clarence and Menzella. Like Merlin, Clarence had also attended Iowa State University and served in the Navy during World War II. After he ended his military career, he worked for Standard Oil before buying his own gas station. After Clarence divorced Manzella, he remarried a woman named Joe and gave Nancy a stepbrother, David, and a stepsister, Kathy. The three kids got along great, according to family. Nancy was involved in a lot of clubs at school. She was part of the pep club, the glee club, the yearbook staff, and the school newspaper. And that was just a few of them. The club that brought her into contact with Bob was the Cubs Club, a club for students who were interested in journalism. Nancy, being a part of the yearbook staff and school paper, was obviously into journalism, but Bob also liked to write, even considering majoring in journalism in college. Bob and Nancy dated through high school and into college. Nancy also attended Iowa State, but it doesn't look like she received a degree at the time. Bob graduated in 1955 with a degree in technical journalism. After his graduation, he and Nancy married at a local church. Then, Bob joined the Army as a second lieutenant. He was part of the Signal Corps in the Motion Picture and Television Division. He was stationed at Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn, New York. He only served two years before being honorably discharged in 1957. He worked in television production in New York for a while until he found a better job in Minneapolis, Minnesota. While there, the Spanglers welcomed their first child, a son named David, who was born on November 27, 1961. Soon after, Bob took a job back in New York working in television production. During this time, Bob helped develop the children's show Sesame Street for PBS. In New York, their daughter Susan was born on August 14, 1963. Bob's work regularly took him to Denver, Colorado to do work for the Honeywell Corporation. It was there that he met a man named Jack Swanberg, who would eventually leave Honeywell and become a lab technician for the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Office. Bob fell in love with the area, and before long, the Spanglers were on their way to the Centennial State. They moved to the town of Littleton, about 30 minutes south of Denver. Bob began working in public relations for the American Waterworks Association, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the drinking water standards around the world. Life in Colorado was idyllic for Bob. He was an outdoorsy guy who loved to hike. A neighbor said that Bob worked a lot and Nancy doted on him and the kids. Though Nancy had also studied journalism in college, she remained a stay-at-home mom through most of her life with Bob. That's because what Bob wanted always came first. Bob wanted to move for a job opportunity, so they did. Bob wanted his career to be more important, so it was. People described Bob as an egotistical person who believed he was always the most important person in the room. It worked well for him in his work in public relations, but it would ultimately be his downfall. In 1976, Bob was living a comfortable life with his family in Littleton, but to Bob, comfortable became boring. He had recently gotten a new administrative assistant named Sharon Cooper. Sharon was born in 1952 and grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. She started working at AWWA as Bob's assistant when she was 24 years old. People at the office said that she was outgoing and flirty, and she took an interest in Bob fairly quickly. Some people in the office said that they knew the couple were having an affair, but others said that it wasn't completely clear since Sharon was flirty to everyone. 
Sharon suffered from mood swings and had low self-esteem. It would be realized later that she suffered from depression. She loved the outdoors and hiking, just like Bob, and people said that she doted on Bob, just like Nancy did. It wasn't long before Nancy found out about Bob's affair. Bob eventually moved out of the Spangler house on South Franklin Way and into Sharon's house on Pearl Street in Denver. Bob spent almost a year living with Sharon and would later say that he didn't keep in touch with his kids on a regular basis. Friends of David and Susan said that they never heard about Bob and they thought it was because they didn't want to talk about their father abandoning them. Bob also said that the kids were out of control during that time. The kids swore and smoked marijuana. David had long hair and played in a band. Susan kept bringing home boys that Bob never liked. People said that Bob didn't like his children very much and preferred to go hiking with Sharon. It didn't help that Sharon wasn't a fan of kids and didn't want them in her house, especially teenagers. Clearly, when your mistress says she doesn't like teenagers, the best option is to start ignoring your own teenage children. It's just a no-brainer. In October of 1978, the honeymoon period for Bob and Sharon was over. He still wanted to be with her, but he was having a hard time living with her. Sharon had a pretty nasty temper, and co-workers recalled her throwing things at him at the office. Bob moved back in with his family in Littleton, and it's believed that he made an effort to possibly repair his marriage. But if he did, it was short-lived. Nancy had recently completed her degree at a local university and was planning to find a job in public relations. She wrote a letter to her father and stepmother a few days after Christmas that explained those plans and said that things between her and Bob were going well. The letter was positive and included her excitement for future plans, something that wouldn't lead one to believe she was suicidal. Bob didn't only plan the details of December 30th, 1978, he planned the details of the days prior. On December 28th, he intentionally got into an argument with Nancy in front of a group of Susan's friends. Susan had two friends and her boyfriend over at the house and the teens asked if they could host a New Year's Eve party. When Nancy agreed, Bob began yelling that she was too lenient with the kids. Susan's friends said that they had never seen Bob so angry and that Susan was nearly in tears. Bob's plan worked because not only did the friends see Nancy upset, but Susan told her boyfriend, Tim Trevithick, she believed that her parents were going to get a divorce. Bob owned a 38 caliber revolver that he told Nancy was for protection for when he took motorcycle trips. He kept it in a shoebox on the top shelf of his closet. Even though he had no problems reaching the gun as he was 6 foot 1 inches tall, he intentionally placed a footstool in front of the closet. He took the gun down to the basement and hid it. In the basement of the Spangler home, not only did David's band practice there, but there was a table with a Corona typewriter on it. On the morning of December 30th, 1978, Bob placed a pre-typed letter into the typewriter. The letter read, quote, What do I say now that I decided to do this? I found the gun by accident some time ago and couldn't help but think about this. I don't know why I didn't say anything to you. I feel shattered. We have always argued about who would have the kids. I will. I know you will get along. You always have. End quote. Bob had previously tricked Nancy into signing an N at the bottom of the page. Then he went to Nancy and asked her to come into the basement where he had a surprise waiting for her. Though the couple had not gotten along recently, she had no reason to believe that Bob had anything nefarious planned. As she sat in the chair at the table with her eyes closed, Bob pulled out the thirty-eight caliber revolver and pointed it at her head. After aiming the gun, Bob gave Nancy her surprise, which was a bullet to the head. Nancy slumped over in the chair. She was 45 years old. 
David and Susan were both still asleep in their rooms, not aware that their father had just murdered their mother. Bob went into Susan's room first and found her asleep on her stomach. He aimed the gun at her back and fired once. The bullet went directly through her heart and killed her pretty quickly, if not instantly. She was 15 years old. Last, Bob went into David's room and attempted to shoot his son directly in the heart as well, but wasn't as lucky this time. The bullet penetrated David's chest and the boy woke up in shock. Bob didn't want to shoot him again because his plan was that each person would be shot once, so he grabbed a pillow and pressed it into David's face. It's unknown how long the struggle lasted, but David fought for his life. When he finally succumbed to Bob's attack, there was blood everywhere and he was hanging halfway off the bed. He was 17 years old. No part of Bob's plan required that his victims be shot once, so his refusal to shoot David a second time is odd. He's going to make it look like Nancy killed the kids, and it seems more likely that the woman, who was much smaller than David, would shoot him again rather than smother him with a pillow. You never know what's going on in a killer's mind, though. Bob went back downstairs and dropped the gun on the basement floor next to Nancy's body. Then he left the scene. Later that morning, Tim tried to call Susan, but got no answer on the phone. Being a persistent teenage boy, Tim went over to the Spangler residence, figuring she was still asleep. When nobody answered the door, he spent a few minutes throwing pebbles at Susan's window. Still nothing. He then took the newspaper from the porch and threw it at her window. Even though it caused a loud thud, he still didn't get an answer. He was a boy who was determined to see his girlfriend, so he walked around the house and found an unlocked basement window. The basement was so dark that he walked by Nancy's body without even seeing it. He climbed the two flights of stairs that led to the second story and made his way to Susan's room. When he entered, he saw his girlfriend laying face down on her bed and there was no sign that anything was wrong. There was no blood and the bullet hole was not immediately visible. When Bob shot Susan, the bullet went through her heart but didn't go all the way through her body. There was no hole in her chest which would allow blood to leave her body due to gravity. It would have to have gone up and out the bullet hole on her back, but her heart stopped beating immediately, causing the blood to stay within her body. Tim threw his hat and gloves at Susan, thinking it would wake her up, but she didn't move. He got closer and realized that she wasn't breathing. He checked her pulse but found none, so he ran from her room and went into David's room. Here, it was very obvious that David was dead. There was blood everywhere. Tim ran to the master bedroom and called the police. Paramedics from the fire department arrived first, but there was nothing they could do. Sheriff's deputies arrived soon after and began writing a report. They noted the condition of the bodies, how they were positioned, and where the bullet wounds were. When they looked in the master bedroom, they noted the location of the step stool in front of the closet. On the top shelf, they found an opened box of 35 caliber ammunition. It wasn't until after the coroner, Mark Hamilton, arrived at the home and went into the basement that they discovered the body of Nancy. Today, if a death is caused by a violent nature, it's standard procedure to have the police clear the entire house before paramedics or other unarmed personnel enter the home. This way, if whoever shot David and Susan was hiding in the basement, the police would find them before they ran upstairs and started shooting paramedics, firefighters, the coroner, etc. Law enforcement had apparently not implemented this practice yet in 1978. The investigator on scene, Marv Tucker, noted the position of the body and the location of the gunshot wound. He pulled the suicide note out of the typewriter and read it. 
He also wrote in his report, quote, A Smith & Wesson Model 12.3 2-inch barrel 6-shot revolver serial number 3067041 was found approximately 5.5 feet from Nancy Spangler's body. That weapon contained three fired rounds and three live rounds. There was a man's sock covering half of the grip, end quote. Bob would later say that he kept the gun wrapped in a sock in the box in the closet, but it was most likely there so authorities couldn't test the handle for fingerprints. Bob returned home at about 4.45 p.m., where his house was crawling with police vehicles and news vans. He was immediately taken to the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Office for questioning. This is where Bob's career in public relations was really going to shine. Bob told the investigators that he and Nancy had an argument the night before and he told her that he was planning on leaving her. He claimed that they both went to sleep in the same bed that night, but got up early in the morning of the 30th and continued fighting. It was about 8.30 a.m. that she demanded he leave the house. He explained that when he left the house at that time, he walked across the backyard and hopped a fence that put him behind the King's Super's grocery store. He walked about a mile or 1.6 kilometers to the South Glen Mall and walked around for a while. After about an hour and a half, he returned home but didn't go inside. He just went straight to the garage, got in his car, and started driving around. He said he drove around listening to a Denver Broncos game and then went to a movie theater and saw the animated Lord of the Rings movie. And it's possible that he really did. He did leave his house at about 8.30 and he may have very well did everything that he said he did that day. What better way to not mess up your story than to have it be true? They tested Bob's hands for gunshot residue, and the lab technician was none other than Jack Swanberg, the man that Bob knew at Honeywell years earlier. Jack tested Bob's hands and found gunshot residue on both the back and the palm of both of his hands. Generally, GSR will end up on the back of a person's hands when they're the shooter since the palm of their hand is pressed against the grip. Someone who picks up the gun after the fact will usually have GSR on the palm of their hand. Bob had both. Though the coroner ruled Nancy's death a suicide, the investigation turned up many details that contradicted that finding. A test for gunshot residue on Nancy's hands came back negative. The typewriter had also been wiped down for fingerprints, which raised concerns with investigators. It was about a month after the incident that Bob was asked to come down to the sheriff's office for further questioning. This time, Bob's story was different. He said that he had left the house and walked around the mall for an hour and a half, then he came home and left again in his car. This time, though, he said he turned around when he got to the end of the neighborhood and went back to the house to talk to Nancy. Once there, he couldn't find Nancy anywhere on the first floor, but when he saw the door to the basement open, he went down there and found his wife slumped over at the table. He claimed to have seen the gun, with the sock covering most of the handle, on the floor. He picked it up and held it in both hands before dropping it. Then he got into his car and left, listening to the Broncos game and seeing the Lord of the Rings in the movie theater like one would naturally do after they found their wife dead. After that, he returned home to see the police and the news media. Bob agreed to take a polygraph test, but he continually changed his breathing the entire time. He hyperventilated while being asked the true baseline questions to skew the test. This caused the test to come back inconclusive. He was retested a few days later, but he did the same thing, and the result was another inconclusive test. The polygrapher noted his behavior, but said he couldn't tell if he was doing it intentionally or not. Bob told his story to investigators one more time, and things changed a little more. This time, there was no fight. Bob told Nancy he wanted a divorce, and she was sad, but they didn't fight. 
The morning of the 30th, they got up and Nancy told Bob she wanted him to leave, and he did, but they didn't fight then either. Most authorities believed that Bob was involved in some way, but they couldn't find any solid evidence against him. On top of that, a handwriting expert determined that Nancy had signed the N at the end of the suicide note. The investigation eventually fizzled out, and Bob Spangler was off the hook for the murders of his family. Ten days after Nancy, David, and Susan died, Bob's mother, Ione, suffered a massive stroke and died back in Ames, Iowa. Now, the only woman in Bob's life was Sharon Cooper. It was a matter of days before Sharon moved into the house on Franklin Way, where Bob's family had all died. The neighbors were suspicious when Bob moved the woman he had been having an affair with into his home just days after his family died, but even worse was when they had a yard sale soon after and most of the items for sale were Nancy's belongings. Bob instantly wiped away the memories of his wife and children and began living his new life with Sharon. Sharon adopted three dogs, Shadow, Sunshine, and Molly, and trained them all. Where Sharon lacked skills when it came to children, she made up for it with her natural ability with dogs. By this time, Sharon was taking medication to help with her mood swings. Today, she would probably be diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but in the late 70s, it would have been called manic depressive insanity. Along with medication, she used her dogs and hiking as a means of coping with her condition. Bob and Sharon got married on July 14, 1979, and went on a motorcycle trip to the West Coast for their honeymoon. On their way back to Colorado, they made a stop at the Grand Canyon, which was Bob's first time there. This would be the first of many trips into the Grand Canyon for Bob and Sharon. The trips to the Grand Canyon were pleasant for many years. Bob and Sharon would hike just the two of them or would join other hikers. There were very few trails that proved to be difficult for Bob. He was still extremely athletic, even though he hadn't played sports since high school. He prided himself on being the best at everything. It would eventually cause Bob to take unnecessary risks on trails that other hikers would remember well. We'll be right back. In the mid-80s, Sharon wrote a book about her experiences titled On Foot in the Grand Canyon. It was published in 1986 and became a well-respected book on the subject, inspiring countless people to journey out to the Grand Canyon and experience its wonder. Also in 1986, Bob took a trip to Ames, Iowa to visit his father. Merlin was 92 years old, but he was in great physical condition and showed no signs that he would die soon, at least not from natural causes. Shortly after Bob arrived, Merlin had a bad fall and ended up dying two weeks later. That caused Bob to inherit all of Merlin's assets and allowed him to retire. What a coincidence. Unfortunately, Sharon's mental health would decline over the years and cause strain in the marriage. In 1987, Sharon had run into the nearby King Super's grocery store and claimed that Bob had taken her car keys so that she couldn't leave town. She said that Bob had threatened to kill her. When police arrived, she told them to leave her alone and then attacked them. She was taken to the hospital for an overnight observation, but before being taken there, she told the officers, quote, My husband is trying to get me, end quote. It was never made clear exactly what she meant, but the following year, Bob and Sharon filed for divorce. In Bob's opinion, Sharon took him to the cleaners. She got a $150,000 settlement and a monthly alimony payment that would continue until 1997. When she moved out, she took one dog with her, Shadow, and the other two dogs, Sunshine and Molly, stayed with Bob. After the divorce, Bob sold the house on Franklin Avenue, the one he had murdered his wife and children in, and moved to a smaller house on Utica Street in Denver. 
He also put a personal ad in the local paper and received a response from a woman named Donna Sundling. Donna was born in 1935 in Nebraska and had been previously married. She had five children who were all grown and had been divorced since 1974. She and Bob met for the first time at a tavern in Denver. The couple began dating and Bob was excited to introduce her to the Grand Canyon. When Bob brought up his love of hiking the canyon, Donna claimed to be interested in going on a trip, but the truth was that she was only saying that to impress her date. Donna was afraid of heights and the thought of hiking terrified her, but she tried it anyway. Unfortunately, Donna had injured her knee in the weeks leading up to the trip, so the hike didn't turn out great, but Bob was still positive. He planned to convert Donna to a regular Grand Canyon hiker. The couple were married on August 18, 1990, at Donna's house in Evergreen, Colorado, just outside of Denver. The plan was for Bob to sell his house and they would live in Donna's house where she was well-established in the community. Just like his life while married to Nancy, what Bob wanted was the most important thing, so Donna ended up leaving her entire circle of friends so they could move to Durango, Colorado. This put Bob closer to other hiking areas and cut his travel time to the Grand Canyon in half. In Durango, Donna took a part-time job as a fitness instructor at Durango Health Club, and Bob started working as a radio DJ at KRSJ 104.9 FM, the country and western station. One thing that stood out to people who worked with Bob at the radio station was his positive attitude and his messages against domestic violence. He would talk about his experience with domestic violence and say that women should be protected against abusive boyfriends and husbands. Little did his listeners know that he had shot his first wife in the head with a thirty-eight caliber revolver after mentally manipulating her for days. In Durango, Bob also started telling different stories of how his family in Littleton had died. While many believed that Nancy shot her children and then herself, Bob told co-workers that Susan died of a drug overdose, David had died in a car accident, and then Nancy committed suicide. He told some people that his family had all died in a car accident while he was at work, and others the same story but that he was also in the car and was the only survivor. He would also tell people that his dogs were trained by someone who worked for Disney. After a few years, Bob came to the realization that Donna did not love the Grand Canyon. Donna's sons were really into skiing and they regularly visited so they could ski in the area, but Bob wasn't interested in skiing. His love was for the canyon. It was almost an obsession. An obsession he thought he'd be sharing with Donna, but that wasn't going to happen. Now that Bob knew that Donna wasn't really interested in the Grand Canyon, she immediately became a weight that was dragging him down. Bob convinced Donna to go on a trip to the canyon with him on Easter weekend in 1993, as a special trip to celebrate the day that they had met four years earlier. Donna told everyone she knew, even her children, that she was afraid of hiking in the Grand Canyon, but she went anyway. She told friends that it was important to Bob, and she may have believed that the trip would help improve their relationship. On April 9th, they started the trip off on a well-established trail and camped for the night. Bob took Donna on increasingly more difficult trails, but Donna managed to keep up. At one point, the couple ran into a group of four other hikers, and they would later say that Bob was very nosy about their plans. He asked where they were headed and where they were planning to camp. He then told them that he and Donna were planning to camp on Horseshoe Mesa near the old mine shaft. This was an area that was off-limits to camping. Bob and Donna left the camp at about 8.30 a.m. and climbed up a trail above the mine shaft. 
He was taking Donna to a place called Redwall, where years earlier he had hiked with Sharon and made a mental note about the location. It was a steep trail on the edge of a cliff about 25 feet or 7.5 meters above the opening to a rock chute that descended at least another 100 feet or 30 meters. As they stopped on the trail, Donna turned to look at Bob, her back facing the cliff. It was at that moment that Bob reached out to his wife and pushed her off the cliff. She hit the rocks at the opening of the chute and tumbled down to the ground just under a tree. It was unlikely that anyone would survive such a fall, but Bob found a steep route down to Donna and checked for a pulse. His plan had succeeded. Donna was dead. She was 58 years old. Bob washed Donna's face, covered it with a red bandana, and then put a tarp over her body. Then he made his way to the ranger station with a story already created in his head. On his way, he ran into the four hikers and told them that Donna had fallen and was dead. When Bob reached the ranger station, he patiently waited in line for his turn at the booth. He calmly told Ranger Dolly McHenry that his wife had fallen to her death. The ranger was surprised by Bob's calm demeanor, but she chalked it up to him being in shock. Coconino Sheriff's deputies arrived on the scene and interviewed Bob. He told them that Donna was not an experienced hiker and that she had been feeling a little dizzy that morning. He said that Donna stood on the edge of the cliff for a picture, and when he looked down to set up the camera, he heard her make a sound. When he looked back up, she was gone. Bob's story was reinforced by the fact that Donna had a prescription for meclizine, which was a drug that treated vertigo. It also helped that 1993 was one of the deadliest years on record for accidental falls from the rim of the canyon. Two park rangers hiked down to where Donna's body was and waited with it overnight until winds died down enough for a helicopter to come and retrieve the body. Authorities measured the fall to be a total of 160 feet, or 48 meters. The autopsy uncovered multiple abrasions and broken bones. Donna had broken legs, broken ribs, and a fractured neck. The medical examiner noted that she suffered from multiple injuries that all could have caused her death. The manner of death was listed as accidental, and authorities found no signs of foul play. Bob had done it again. Due to what his divorce from Sharon had cost him, Bob was not about to go through that again. When he and Donna purchased their house in Durango, he tried to have the house put in just his name, but Donna objected. She did, however, write a will that ensured that her half of the house went to her husband in the event that she died before he did. Bob was well aware of this. Bob went onto the radio to announce the death of his wife, not so much to let people know about a tragedy, but to gain their attention. He used it as an opportunity to increase his celebrity. He took calls from people who were sorry for his loss and showered him with condolences. Bob and Sharon had stayed in touch since their divorce, and Bob was well aware of all of Sharon's ups and downs. At the end of 1993, Sharon had a lot of money tied up in real estate, and she was struggling financially. Bob wrote her a letter in December and told her that he would give her $10,000. He would give her the first half in the middle of 1994, and the second half in the middle of 1995. He made sure to let her know that it was in no way an admission that he had done anything wrong in their marriage, or that he thought she didn't get enough in the divorce. In July of 1994, Bob rented out a room to Sharon and she moved in with him in Durango. She planned to use Bob's house as a haven to recover from years of mental illness and emotional losses. She had attempted to write another book, but was never able to put anything together. She tried to start a few businesses, but they failed. 
She had dated various men, but the relationships never worked out. Most devastating was the loss of her best friend, Shadow, who had passed away that summer. She tried to spend time in Durango and realign herself with a positive attitude to get back out there and take her life back, but the depression was just too strong. On October 1st, 1994, Sharon wrote a letter to Bob while he was out of the house officiating a soccer game. It read, quote, You've said you wanted one of your former wives' lives to turn out okay. Your nurturing love gave me so much, and this release is, for me, a turning out okay. Please, my dear friend, acknowledge that this is the only way I could finally be okay and be well. To join God and Shadow and Dad. Love, Sharon. End quote. Sharon swallowed an entire bottle of prescription pills and washed it down with alcohol. She tacked a note to her door that read, quote, I've done it this time, end quote, and then laid down in bed. Bob said he had come home around 3.30 p.m., but didn't notice the note on Sharon's door for about an hour. When he ran into Sharon's room, he found her conscious, but she was in bad shape. He rushed her to Mercy Medical Center, where Sharon was supposedly conscious enough to tell the doctor that she had taken an overdose of pills. They gave her medicine to counteract the drugs and to try to charcoal treatment, but after 12 hours in the hospital, Sharon died. She was 52 years old. There are obviously suspicions that Bob had something to do with Sharon's death, but there's no way of knowing what really happened. He may have poisoned Sharon before he left to go to the soccer game, which would have matched what happened when he killed his family in 1978. He may have manipulated an already depressed Sharon into committing suicide and only took her to the hospital after he knew she was too far gone. Maybe she did try to commit suicide, but when she started getting better at the hospital, Bob had a change of heart and caused her death. It's reported that Bob was alone in the room when Sharon finally passed away. With Sharon gone, he wouldn't have to give her the second half of his $10,000 gift in 1995, and he wouldn't have to pay alimony anymore. On the other hand, Sharon was the woman he seemed to have the most feelings for, and he volunteered to give her the $10,000 on his own. It's possible he had nothing to do with her death. Out of his three wives, it's the only death he's never admitted to. Now that every single one of Bob's wives had died in mysterious ways, authorities began taking notice. A detective from the Coconino County Sheriff's Office, Bruce Cornish, became aware of all of the deaths and started looking into the case. After talking to people involved in the supposed murder-suicide in 1978, Donna's quote-unquote accidental death in 1993, and Sharon's presumed suicide in 1994, Detective Cornish could barely keep all of the different stories that Bob had told people straight. With so many conflicting stories and some pretty questionable evidence, the detective thought it would be a good idea to talk to Bob himself. When Cornish arrived unexpectedly at Bob's house, the bald, gray-bearded man didn't seem nervous. He answered all of the detective's questions with reasonable answers, though some of them contradicted what he had said at other times, like in newspaper interviews. It wasn't until Detective Cornish told Bob that he was setting up a polygraph test for him that the man seemed to have an issue. Bob jumped up and started hyperventilating. He claimed that he had taken a polygraph after Nancy killed the kids and herself, and it was so stressful that he hyperventilated and couldn't take the test. Bob said he would not take a polygraph test. The detective was positive that Bob had something to hide. By 1998, Bob was now using the internet to find women. 
He had met a woman from Pennsylvania online and eventually quit his job at the radio station to go out and be with her. The only problem is that the woman was not informed of Bob's plan. He just sold his house and showed up on her doorstep one day. She said that he was pushy and wanted to move in with her, and she told him to get lost. Unlike the other women that Bob had been with, he was not the center of her world, and she didn't want anything to do with him. So Bob tucked his tail between his legs and went back to Colorado, settling in Grand Junction, about 200 miles or 321 kilometers north of Durango. It was at a singles breakfast in town that Bob met a woman named Judy Hilty, and the two hit it off. This entire time, authorities in Lilton, Durango, and the Grand Canyon, along with the FBI, were tracking everything Bob did. They knew he had been involved in the deaths of Nancy, Susan, David, and Donna, and believed he may have been involved in Sharon's death as well. They just couldn't find any real evidence. They needed a confession. It was in August of 2000 that authorities would learn that Bob was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer as well as brain lesions. Investigators believed that this was their chance to get Bob to admit to his crimes. They were going to use his massive ego against him, and they needed to act fast, because on September 1st, 2000, Bob and Judy were married at the courthouse in Grand Junction. I don't know about you, but I would be hesitant to become the fourth wife of a man whose previous three wives had all died. Even if you don't think he's a killer, he's clearly cursed, or bad luck, or something. I couldn't imagine saying, oh, your first three wives all died? Sure, I'll marry you. On September 14, 2000, authorities took Bob into the Grand Junction Police Department for an interview. They'd set up the office so when Bob entered the station, he would see a bunch of officers and agents working on boxes of files, and one of the doors had a sign on it that read Spangler Task Force. It was all an act to make Bob feel like he was the most important person in the building. Bob initially told the same stories he had used to get away with his crimes. But as he told stories, one of the investigators would correct Bob when he got a detail wrong. Slowly but surely, Bob started to realize that the authorities knew a lot more about him than he thought. He indicated that he was worried about how this situation would affect Judy, so she was brought to the station so Bob could see her. After that, Bob requested a night to discuss details with his wife, and the authorities let him go home. It's unknown what Bob and Judy talked about that night. It's suspected that Bob didn't fully disclose just how involved in the murders he was. The next morning, he went back to the station to negotiate with authorities. He requested to talk to an FBI profiler, probably thinking that he would be interesting to them due to his overinflated opinion of himself. After a few hours, Bob finally told investigators the truth about what had happened to Nancy, David, and Susan on the morning of December 30th, 1978. Bob was still holding back on admitting to murdering Donna. He still claimed it was a tragic accident. This is where Bob's ego betrayed him. When the investigators told him he could only meet with a profiler if he confessed to Donna's murder, Bob couldn't resist the idea of being studied by the FBI. He couldn't resist the idea of the FBI wanting to talk to him to find out why he had done the things he had done. Bob took the bait and admitted to pushing Donna off the cliff in the Grand Canyon in 1993, but he assured them that they were blaming him for one too many deaths as he did not kill Sharon. It was a death that he would continue to refuse that he was responsible for. Authorities had him for four murders, and he didn't have long to live, so they considered the interview a win. 
Ultimately, Bob killed for his own personal happiness, stating, quote, it was easier than divorce, end quote. As part of Bob's deal with authorities, he was released after his interview and given a 30-day grace period so he could get his affairs in order and take one last trip to the Grand Canyon. Judy remained with Bob during this time, telling one investigator that she knew he had murdered others, but she believed that he had changed. For some reason, Bob had an unusual power over most women that he took advantage of most of his life. On October 3, 2000, Bob was arrested by Grand Junction police. He initially entered a plea of not guilty, and it looked like his lawyers were going to claim that his brain cancer had caused him to give a false confession. It wasn't long, though, before Bob decided to accept reality and agreed to a plea deal. Robert Spangler pleaded guilty to first-degree murder for Donna and publicly admitted to killing Nancy, David, and Susan. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He died of cancer in prison on August 5th, 2001. He was 68 years old. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. Pluto TV is playing the biggest movies every night this summer for free. Watch hit movies like The Matrix, G.I. Joe Retaliation, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Scary Movie, Runaway Bride, and more all summer long. Check out the biggest stars like The Rock, Keanu Reeves, Tom Cruise, Julia Roberts, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and more. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of free TV channels in English and Spanish featuring TV shows, news, sports, comedy, and more all for free. Download the free Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device, including Android and Apple smartphones. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home okay. It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe. 
and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. Life's full of things we can't depend on, like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on. See CertaIreland.ie Shrink your Christmas bill at Dunn Stores. Delicious free-range 4 kilo Irish turkeys are just 39 99 and incredible unsmoked centre-cut Irish ham is now just thirteen fifty-nine for 2.75 kilos. That's 20% off. King Prawn Cocktail and Oak and Peat Cold Smoked Salmon are just €6. Euro. Plus, with our 10 or 50 grocery voucher, you save even more. Dunn Stores. Make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Voucher can be used to next grocery shop of €50 euro or more. Thorga Erid Shansig Porsche the Influa Oil agus Thorg Dini Fasta. Rotajetak of there in a hushkinish kumkushik. Togat parsley it a ravlin aga shachmina derg dish in on and vaccine flu shrona oil serenashka. Is balak savalja agas erfaktok a thorn sock in either cushions. Kum madlish on quid eladin tiluk. Jane quinna let the hook dog in her alta, nor let the foot the gear. Tell all a sheriff oil like HSC punkai tul slash flu. O imanoch nershervisha slancha.